How does YouTube know so much about me? I'm searching on my browser for solutions to my too slow responding Bluetooth mouse. In moments, YouTube feeds me shorts about solving math problems. I'm following a teen mental health Twitter chat, and my TikTok feed shows me threads about mental health apps. How do they know? I'm getting personal comments about my mental health. My mental health is mostly good, but who else will know? Do I care? I live my life out loud. I don't share what I wouldn't want on a billboard, which for me is almost everything. When is that unsafe? When should I be embarrassed? I'm no longer looking for work, so I don't care. Who can access my data? What should I share? What does privacy even mean? How does privacy impact the need for connection? Isn't privacy a continuum? Different needs at different times for different people? So many questions. Today's guest, Fred Trotter, co-authored the seminal work, Hacking Healthcare. Fred is a healthcare journalist, an expert in clinical data analysis, healthcare informatics, differential privacy, and clinical cybersecurity. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of healthcare and a lot about very little. You'll listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome surface of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading, hearing, or watching? Go to the link tree slash health hats for all things health hats. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash health hats, one word. Thank you. Fred Trotter, how the hell are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. I've been anticipating this for some time, and I really wanted That's to funny. chew on something with you. So one of the things that you and I have in common is our interest in privacy in digital communication. And I'm finding a dearth of content in this area. So I think about three things. I think about the continuum of risk tolerance. And I mean that both in groups, within groups. So you and I might have tolerances. And for me personally, that my risk tolerance changes from sometimes even from moment to moment. I also think that connection and privacy are the flip sides of the same coin. Meaning I want to connect, like I need a community 
But the more I do that, the more, the harder privacy is. So privacy, ultimate privacy is I don't talk to anybody. Okay. And then finally, I think about harm reduction. Now, I know that harm reduction is a term used in substance abuse treatment, but I think about it in the area of privacy, is that there is no absolute privacy. And so based on my ever-changing risk tolerance, my need for connection, how do I reduce the harm can that can be caused me with privacy issues. So it's funny you should mention harm reduction. A college friend of mine, a woman named Elizabeth Chiarello, is an opioid researcher. She studies pharmacists and the situations in different regulatory contexts. And she is absolutely a harm reductionist. So I was just having this conversation about harm reduction. And I think a harm reduction in my mind is a, a similar concept to patient safety where there is two versions of the word. One is in as a term of art that's coming from a very specific clinical context. And of course, as you point out, harm reduction is usually talked about in the context of opioids. And in that context, it means let's not criminalize this and instead let's focus on reducing the harm that this really complicated and miraculous class of drugs provides. I think patient safety is the other term that, that's very similar to this, where in the specific clinical context, it's a set of procedures that hospitals, specifically hospitals, should be following in order to ensure that that unnecessary harm doesn't befall patients as a standard part of their treat, treatment. And I think then there's the more general lessons that should, should come from these approaches, which is, I think in harm reduction's case, I would say the generalizable version of that is, I think this is precisely the point you're making, is that perhaps this concept should have a life outside of this context and become a, more of a broad concept. And for harm reduction there, it's like, let's generally take away the potentially take away the shame associated with some, perhaps the consequences, the negative arbitrary consequences that are associated with a particular clinical topic. And then let's just look at the, let's just look at the underlying situation. And then with patient safety, I think it is the generalizable version of that is in whatever context you are talking about, are you using best practices to reduce patient harm in a particular context? Very simple, really. And as you switch from an inpatient hospital context to an outpatient context to the date to the context of doing research and doing data aggregation, which is a concept that the areas that we talk about a lot, it's not clear what patient safety means exactly. It's also not clear what harm reduction means. It's also not clear what privacy means, right? So it's like, you want know, to chew on something. Thank you for the invitation <laughs> to chew on something. These are all terms that that kind of mean what you want them to mean in the context of a conversation. And I think they're pretty good terms. I think the internet in general has taken terms like, for instance, I think the term health equity has become politicized and an equity generally has become this really controversial topic. And when that happens, the internet kind of tears a word apart and makes it useless because, because people are hearing a word and, and really hearing totally different things when they say the same word. It makes, it makes good faith communication really difficult. 
But I definitely think that patient safety, privacy, harm reduction, there's some kind of common thread there about expectations that is powerful. The other thing, I think when you talk about the spectrum of risk, what I hear there is something that I think is, I think there's two camps that I really disagree with when you're talking about privacy and cybersecurity. And one camp is the, we're going to communicate no matter what. And you might be able to convince us to use HTTPS as opposed to HTTP or something on encrypted connection, but we're going to communicate. We're going to send data around and we're going to, we're going to do what needs to be done. And we're not thinking about the implications of the data moving is somebody else's problem. And then there's the people who I used to really have problems with, which is the people who are like, let's just shut it all down. Let's not, I want my medical bills to go over nail mail, please. <laughs> and I don't want any electronic, anything happening about me if I can prevent it. And let's, until we can figure out how to secure it, let's just go to zero on communications. So what I would say is communication maximalist, communication minimalists is the other side. Because what you're, the implication of what you say when you say I have a risk spectrum is, is that you want the communication to happen, but not in all contexts. And you're willing to trade off some communication to reduce risk in some contexts. Contexts, And actually, that, that in and of itself, just acknowledging that there is some kind of balancing that needs to occur, from my perspective, is the basis for a sophisticated conversation. A surprising number of people need to be convinced <laughs> that any consideration of privacy is good, like any balancing is good because they're communication maximalists or any communication is good if they're privacy maximalist and communication minimalist. And then the other thing I think is just we to acknowledge, and I think all of this is set up, like I haven't even started talking to you. I think I feel badly about it. I'm just talking about how we should talk about the conversation we're going to have is what a modern notion of privacy is if we and I think people who are sociologists and anthropologists who are looking backwards in time and thinking about how things were when the majority of the world lived in small villages, it's real difficult for the whole village not to know all things about you. So if you look back in the Bronze Age, the running a city was a logistical nightmare because you didn't have trucks and anything else. You have a carts of grain coming in and out to feed people. And you had to have all these villages. And so the vast majority of people were living in places that had under 200 people, but all cooperating to, to make some land work effectively. And, and so there was no privacy, but there was also no aggregate. There, there was no harm scaling, I guess is the way to say it for lack of a better word. It's like if you go viral in a bad way in, in the modern era, and of course, you either you or I could say something dumb and go viral in the wrong way on this call and every call we're ever on. But if you're if you do something where you think nobody's watching and somebody is watching, somebody does have a camera, you think you have privacy, you don't, and that because the viral thing that could absolutely ruin your life, and sometimes should. So I think issues like police violence and the cases where policemen are acting inappropriately. We really needed cameras for a lot longer than we've had. I'm, I'm sure thankful that we have the cameras now. So I'm not necessarily even saying that going viral negatively is and having 
mass consequences where your reputation can be absolutely destroyed for a million or a billion people at once is necessarily a negative thing. I think there are some cases where that's warranted. But it is absolutely a new judicial engine about how we're going to judge people and how we're going to wait. What do you uh, mean by a judicial engine? I think it is an alternative to the traditional uh, rule of law system for having judgment, right? So if you and I really disagree, and we don't, we haven't obviously haven't committed any crimes. Like if I hit you in public, that's assault. And there's a judicial process that the government takes over once that crime has occurred. But we can sue each other too, right, in private court. And all of that's around this system of jur- jurisprudence, rule of law. And there's certain things that are taken for assumptions. One is innocent until proven guilty. People, I think, fail to realize how much evolution has occurred in that, right? Because we have the concept of trial by judge, right, which is in contrast to trial by jury. And you can go into a court and you can make a decision very early on the process which one of those two things you prefer. Sometimes you can't. But there's these, but there was also a trial by combat. And the concept there is that what God will favor <laughs> whoever was right in the argument. And so if you lop my head off, you were right, and vice versa. So people, you know, that is a judicial process that has taken centuries to evolve. It has variations across the globe. The variations are significant. You can think about the judicial engine system in Singapore. It is famously different, for better or for worse, famously different than the one in the United States. So we have this concept of how we are going to adjudicate problems and pass judgment potentially on people. And social media... And I'm very uncomfortable. Let me just put a pin in that. I'm very uncomfortable with that term. I do not like the term social media. I think in general, when you say social media, it might be, not always, but it might be an indication that you don't understand the word social and you don't understand the word media. You put them and you've made something that's worse than either one of those concepts in terms of the degree to which you understand it. But the platforms of communication that we have upon which you can go viral have created a judicial engine that is an alternative to the traditional court system that we have. We as a society can pass judgment on somebody who, for instance, gets off of a plane. This is a famous case of a woman going viral where she's obviously had either too much sugar or too much to smoke or some, too much of something. And she's talking about how people aren't real back on the back of the plane. So this is, And our judgments, I think if we talk to that person and we can magically have her momentarily on our podcast, I think she would argue pretty vehemently that she's been treated unfairly. Yeah. And it just doesn't matter. There's a judicial process there that's in place that is secondary to that. All right. Um, I want to ask you a specific question. So how would you define privacy? So let me, and first of all, in my compliments for interrupting a story, don't go. let me rant too much. <laughs> we have this ancient bronze village where we don't have, if you screw up, it's limited to the 250 yes. people. And if you really screw up, you might have to right. switch villages. And then we get to the modern era, and there was this really weird period where you could get a house in the suburbs, so to speak, and you could have a greater degree in privacy than you had in the village. And nobody knew your business. You were behind your closed doors, and you had your own yard, and the yards and things like that were buffers towards information leaking out. And now we have a reduction from that the reduction from a kind of temporary place of strong privacy to what we have today. And I think a definition of privacy, I would 
I think there's been a bunch of revolutions in our understanding of shame. Like we've really been studying it lately and it, it, we've understood what a much more powerful force it is. And that is the mechanic by which this extrajudicial system works. So what I would say, a freedom to process the issues in your life, which might bring shame, either shame in the sense that I feel it myself or that other people are attempting to make me feel it on issues that, that, that might be so personal that you, shame might be a problem. And, uh, and of course, uh, one of the things that I think differentiates patients on how they, they come out on privacy is whether or not their medical condition is socially acceptable and socially welcomed, which of course is something that changes in the course of society about what's welcome and what's not welcome. So <clears throat> I don't think you can really talk about privacy effectively without talking about shame and what we choose to shame in our culture. I do think how I do think I'm unique in defining it that way. Never thought uh, about it that way. I think the the shame part. That's very interesting. Let's just one of the. I'm trying to think about what is TMI for a conversation. That I know it's going to be totally public, but I have this long hallway in my house. Like if you look that way, okay. there's a long hallway, and it's not an apartment that I have. I really love my apartment, but a long thin hallway, and I if I'm. I very frequently find myself because I've forgotten my implements walking naked between the down this mm -hmm. long hallway. And there's just one building over here that has on the other side, these is a big window that can see in mm -hmm. my long window. Now I'm not ashamed of how I am naked. I'm okay with my body and everything else now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm keen to have somebody right. with a camera oh. taking a photo down that. So am I ashamed of my body? Do I have shame for my nakedness and all this kind of stuff? If I'm thinking about it as an independent problem without the calculus of anybody else being involved, which is, I think, what privacy right. means, the answer is, <laughs> I'm good. If I'm thinking about it uh, from the perspective of photo being on the internet that never gets taken down and the Barbara Streisand effect, that one probably neighbor, I don't actually know them, is in a position to to take time to figure out how to get a picture through my window. And I think everyone's windows are the same way, right? I'm not unique in this situation. Right. It's just the, it's just the yes. situation I'm thinking about. I think there's probably an equivalent situation right, where right. you live and every person has and neighbors, unless they've taken a lot of effort to make sure they don't. I think actually an interesting question. That's not actually people who are really concerned with privacy don't subject themselves to those variables. I think there is a bunch of space for discussing. I think the easy one, and this is something I've been thinking about a long time, and I think this patient community has a lot of, has a lot of shame issues that they are to change using actually the platforms. We're trying to change into not shame is people who have colostomy bags. Say that again, have are, what? Have colostomy oh, okay. bags. Yeah, okay. yeah. Bag. yeah. And having a digestive system that essentially is no longer 100% right. inside, for lack of a better, for a better term. Um, and there's a there's people now who are going online and saying, I'm going to take pictures of myself in a bathing suit with my colostomy bag at the beach, which is marvelous. I applaud that. Because I think what you're trying to do there is you're trying to refactor the shame. You're trying to say, well, this is not actually something shameful. It's just, it's just a fact right. of life for me. And I'm not going to okay. put that in your face, but no, if I want to go to the beach, this okay, is what so I have to Okay, so there's this piece of it that's shame but then there's a piece of it about what are people doing with 
information. If I'm denied access to something, I, I don't get a job or I can't get insurance. And I think, <clears throat> I hope that I'm, my definition okay. extends to that. Because what I'm talking about is not just that for which you feel shameful oh, internally. Oh, that, you like did the, say that, yes. But also the sense in which other people are saying that in you is not acceptable and we're going to extrajudicially. Okay. Okay. Oh, and hence we're back to the judicial. Okay, so now I'm, this is falling together for me. So what do you think about this, the connection? the desire for connection and your tolerance of privacy risk. I think you're, you're absolutely in the vagaries that, that I think I was just in, which is, I think there's two different underlying meanings for connection that have two very different implications, right? If I'm talking about my need to communicate with you and to talk about my personal stuff with you, that is a peer-to-peer connection. And I think I think we as a society are still reeling. Every time we have a new medium with different rules, every time we have a TikTok works a different way than Facebook dig, which is different from Instagram, which is different from this. Every time that happens, we have a different understanding of what it means to be peer-to-peer one-on-one and also peer-to-group communication in terms of what clinical privacy might mean. However, I also think that when you say a need for connection, I think of the boring stuff, which is in many cases a much bigger deal, which is you have a very boring need for connecting to your health insurance company. Okay. So we're talking about, I got to get reoriented. We're talking about connection and we're talking about different definitions. We're talking about connections. I think there's people to people and then there's people uh, needs. you switch clinics. Yes. That's a connection. Right. You get a new insurance. That's a connection. Right. There's all these connections that are boring that happen in the background. And then there's the connections that you willfully take, which is you make a new friend, you have a new romantic relationship, you enter a new community because you're a patient who's just been diagnosed with XYZ and you want to find out what other people are. So those are very different things, but they both fall under the definition of connection. And I think there's a middle class, but if I could just. Yeah. Continue my rant for sure. just one moment. If you'd yeah. be patient. No, you're doing so fine. Sorry. Once, once I get on a train, meant to have trouble, okay. trouble getting off. <laughs> so far, it's good. Uh, but I think there's a middle ground, and I think the middle ground is you have something, you have a connection made that there's a connection that you assume is not one where your personal privacy is invested, but in fact, it is. And I think credit card companies are a perfect example of that. I think Facebook is any company that's in a position to infer what your data is having. It's in between uh, or perhaps a different locus altogether. It's something else other than I'm making a decision to connect and share what's going on in my mm-hmm. personal life with a new person individually or in a group. And then also with the, these kind of boring and safe connections that you have with your health insurers and all those kind of people who are in the HIPAA world. And so I think the... This makes space for the privacy extracting as a business cases where you are having a connection You're talking about your, your, I think your paradigm is right. It's like there's connection and then there's privacy and how they interact. And I think there's the world of, I've shared something personal with you. I'd rather you not say that to the whole world privacy. 
as a peer-to-peer phenomenon. Then there's, I'm talking to my doctor, I'm talking to my health insurance, the HIPAA covered in the United States, at least HIPAA covered world. And then there's this new middle ground where Apple knows whether or not I am, I have HIV, even though I've never explicitly told Apple that I've not necessarily used their health tools. It understands because it's following me around so completely that they just know that. And so does Google for different reasons. And so does Amazon for different reasons. And so does Facebook and a bunch of other places that you wouldn't think right? Target, your place where you shop famously is in this category of people who are in a position to uh, infer with a very high degree of reliability what your health conditions are and other things that you might want to keep private. And so I think there's, when you think of connectivity versus privacy, I think because of the regulatory and practical circumstances under which we live, there end up being at least three really big buckets of what connectivity and privacy mean. And they are? Oh, I'm sorry. One is HIPAA-covered world, talking to your doctor, peers, and then these weird... Okay. Those are the three. All right. So then if Um, we're going to talk about harm reduction, it's similar. It's There's multiple levels of harm reduction there. Let's see, there's harm to me from individual to individual. There's harm that you don't see necessarily, right? That you're unaware of that's happening, meaning somebody knows something about you, sells it, denies you something that's hidden. So reducing harm can be, well, there's stuff you can control and there's stuff you can't. I say certainly, but I guess I would be hard pressed to say what I can control and what I can't. So what do you think about that harm reduction in terms of this, what we're talking about, which is better understanding how complex any of this is? Let me make useful oversimplifications, okay. right? And I invite you to do the same, right? It's useful for complex. You all, you have to acknowledge that okay. they are oversimplifications. So I'm oversimplifying a bunch of things to make, I think, useful points. <clears throat> Let's oversimplify the peer-to-peer thing by assuming that if you're rude to people at a birthday party, all your friends and family are at a birthday party and you're rude, they're going to shun you a little bit, right? And so the problem on, the problem with the peer-to-peer privacy, you can oversimplify to be that scales mm-hmm. nearly infinitely. So if I'm rude at a birthday party now and I say something that the parents don't appreciate, the birthday child doesn't appreciate, and somebody catches it on a camera, that can scale. But the whole world knew that Fred was rude at a mm-hmm. birthday party. So okay. Scaling is, is the problem okay. with the peer-to-peer. Let's just assume that okay. is all there is to it. No, I hear or you, but it's a good point. Good oversimplification is just that what used to didn't scale now scales. And I think the problem I have with the, so that's, we'll just assume that the peer-to-peer stuff is there. Let's assume also for an oversimplification that your doctor and your insurance company are always on your side. So let's assume everything that's HIPAA covered is working in your favor. That's a dangerous oversimplification because we know that's not true. But let's assume that it is. And let's assume that when we talk about the real problems with privacy are this 
much less regulated, much less opaque, like this middle ground of big tech understanding stuff about you. you. You didn't know that they understood or you didn't explicitly tell them. And I think the problem with that is the redlining okay. problem. And I'm referring to the case in the kind of racist past of the United States where there was explicit rules in the financing in industry to ensure that certain parts of town were available only to people of certain races. Now, of course, the problem with that is that there's that very explicit racist path. And there's a study by 538. And of course, you didn't introduce me, but I'm a healthcare data journalist. So I'm really, I really want to use data to understand things. And 538 is data journalists more generally. They do cover healthcare topics. And it's like they've discovered that in general, the former explicit practice of redlining carries over into a modern world where redlining is still the influence is still happening. The neighborhoods are still segregated and it just continues on. And the experience that I think that is critical for redlining is that it is in this zone of the judicial processes that are not formally part of the judicial system that people's, they're making judgments in society about people and, uh, and they don't know. It's, and of course, any community talks. So if your community is never able to get mortgages in a particular area, it's not like you don't know that, right? But it's there's also no formal judgment. You don't really understand exactly what's going on. Who is doing that? Is it the government? Is it the banks? Is it the real estate agents? And of course, the answer that we know now is all of the above. We're participating in that. <clears throat> so what's happening? And I'm very, very concerned. So two things. One is, that explicit policy was made illegal a long time ago and was practiced even before that and still has impacts today. And, and practically speaking, in some cases, you could say that the policy is not over. And I'm, uh, that is a kind of embedding of a practice that is unethical into a system that impacts everyone. And I'm very concerned that those kinds of unethical practices are being embedded in to modern AI. And of course, I'm not the first person to consider the possibility that modern artificial intelligence is, might be racist, might be sexist, might be unethical and discriminatory in some other way. That's certainly, everyone's talking about that. I think as a healthcare journalist in this conversation, I'm much more interested in discussing precisely how those problems can be healthcare mm -hmm. related as opposed to mm -hmm. they. Exactly. As opposed to real estate, which I don't know. Right. I don't know anything about redlining. I don't know anything about real estate. That's not my area, except to know that this is a huge problem that's carrying over our society. And also, it is one of the areas where uh, <clears throat> I think e even now, your zip code is more important than your blood pressure in terms of your health care. And so there are cases where, and I try to be, and this is one of, one of the reasons I try to be at least somewhat informed, is that there's all of these issues ultimately impact people's health. So... Here is, I have a story about that I've recently learned about AI, which I'm going to be thinking about and talking about a lot because I think it's very important to understand. And when I, and I am thinking about this judicial thing. You've picked up on it like four times. I need your help as I expand my audience to younger people in advocacy. I'm doing more in short form videos. Please help by pointing me to communities of young advocates and channels and hashtags they use so I can listen and learn. I now have one URL for all channels and media. That's linktree slash health hats. 
Linktree is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E and then slash health hats, one word, where you can subscribe, access episodes, my website and social media, and search the Health Hats archive. Your support is appreciated. Please visit Linktree slash health hats. Thank you. I'm thinking about this extrajudicial outside of the formal court system judgments that we make in society all the time. The most important in healthcare is coverage decisions. Is your treatment going to be covered? Is your medication of choice going to be covered? Is the medication that kind of works for you going to be covered as opposed to the one that kind of works but doesn't work going to be covered? I'm trying to do a little bit of video casting to LinkedIn, and I was discussing this on my video casting where a physician used chat GPT to write to create the letter that he was going to send to an insurance company to say this procedure should be covered. Of course, the clinical topic, I can't remember what it was. It doesn't matter. I didn't understand it when I was talking about it. And he basically said something along the lines of, take my side in a clinical argument, and then he constructed the clinical argument, have a respectful tone and provide references. So sure enough, ChatGPT just spits out this, this thing. What I thought was interesting about that was how there was no question about whether or not I was right. He just put, he told ChatGPT he was right <laughs> and then had ChatGPT argue for him. And so what I did on in live streaming is I just tested to see if I could reverse the polarity entirely. And I said, I'm an insurance company, ChatGPT. And here's exactly the clinical topic, exactly as the physician had described it. Show why that's not necessary and provide references. Use a respectful tone. And sure enough, ChatGPT took the other side of the argument and said why that was not acceptable. One of the reasons why I have been so fo focused on like the judgments that we make and how things get decided is that I think it's going to be substantively outsourced to AI that has access to maybe the parts of your digital footprint that you wouldn't necessarily want them put together in a particular way. So I think what we're going to have is it's, like, do I have a problem with the fact that let's say I've got an STD? Do I have the problem with the grocery store knowing that I bought a cream and them knowing that I got a particular prescription in the pharmacy and them knowing that I was in there, let's say at two, but what time is it right now? It's Tuesday, early morning, not a normal time for a professional to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy. But if I've got an urgent matter, I'm going to go there. So am I comfortable with the grocery store knowing when I was there, what the medication was, and the fact that I bought a particular item in their grocery store. Sure. I don't have a problem with that. Like, I, do I have a problem with them putting that all together and knowing that I have an STD? Yeah, I do. I don't like that. That's not their business. So I, they are of course putting those information together and they're, it's not that they're putting that information together to figure out whether or not Fred has a particular STD or Fred has a particular condition or Fred has this or something else that might be considered shameful. They're putting everything together for everyone, for everything. It's just, they want to know, it's like they want to have this picture because that's a valuable picture. They can sell me more things if they understand mm -hmm. what my problems are, what I'm interested in and what kind of things I might buy. It, it's just that 
in certain circumstances, that information is super right. damaging. So I'm very concerned with AI becoming the, not just the place. So imagine that happening. Like we have all of these processes. They're very, very similar to judicial processes where are you, you request to have your medication covered. And then the insurance company sends back and says, we're not going to do that. And then, okay, you can appeal that to a higher level and you can say, my doctor's now involved. My doctor's mailing you. And it goes back and forth like this until it actually, and this is the interesting part, almost all judicial processes that are outside of the courts have a moment where they will actually switch to being in the courts. And what I foresee is a human judge looking at a set of correspondence where no human has written anything, right? Where it's been AI on both sides all the way up the top, right? And then the first time that a human is saying, is this judgment that's been reached by this outside deciding system outside the courts, I don't want to say extrajudicial because that has a meaning, but I think that's, it's hard for me not to say that, I think it has, but outside courts deciding, and then it goes into the courts and then for the first time, a judge is there reading words that have been written and read by AI, and no human has ever either written or read. So I've been denied my medication, and I know we're, we are working on it, but what I mean by we is the AI advocates for my doctor and the AI advocates for the insurance company have been interacting and trying to sort it out. And they can't reach an agreement. And so now we're going to go to court about whether or not this medication is covered under my insurance plan. I, I think that's not just, I don't think that's a fantasy. I think that's yeah, going to be the new normal. All right. So let me, I'm going to shift again. So as a person, I am awash in how complicated this is. That how much risk there is, how malevolent it is sometimes. And so what can I do? Not I'm not so much asking you specifically what I can do. I'm not asking that yet. I'm so going with the way we've been talking, which is taking down the buckets that are within what can I do? There's what I can do that's at the level of password protection, like individual things that I can do. And I'm not minimizing anything, like saying that password protection is huge, actually. But then there's also on the other level, there's policy and regulation. Oh, they're influencing that. But so how would you break down the domains of what I can do to reduce potential harm to myself in these in this arena? So that's a difficult question. So one thing is that we form the Light Collective, which is, I think, an organization that is at least intending to try and take stands and provide some education about what you should be doing in terms of like how to protect yourself and then also how to advocate for yourself and regulation and these kinds of things. And I continue to endorse that organization. I don't work with them as much as I, as I did when Andrea Downing and I started it. 
but I definitely continue to endorse their purpose and their actions. Continue to, to be impressed with that team. So if you want like a corpus of stuff to study, go to Light Collection and, and and I think they've got a little, I just pulled them up. They've got a resource library. That's yes. probably what you want to read about. And I recommend that stuff. I think what I have been, and I wrote a bunch of the stuff that they uh, at least started with. And I think things like password managers and these kind of things, I think are important. I think understanding, and let me just say, I think the problem in this area is I understand. So I come from a background of cybersecurity. I've consulted for VeriSign and I've consulted for, and I've testified on cybersecurity stuff. And so I'm relatively well-versed in how cybersecurity works. And I find myself flummoxed about exactly how to approach this stuff. And so I'm dubious that an education and learning is going to help because I've learned a lot and I'm still in a position where I don't know exactly okay. what to do. That's I can quite tell a statement. You that one of the things that I, it is quite a statement, yeah. actually, it's a problem. Let me tell you some of the generalized approaches that, that I do. I use a password manager. I do not use a password manager that is incorporated into my browser. I actually think using one that's in your browser is probably a good practice and it's probably how you should do it because it's simpler, but I choose to go one step farther. The other thing I have started to do is, is to embrace pseudonymity in, in, in a really formal way. And I just have two accounts on every device that I have. I've got a Fred Trotter, and then I've got another user that I log in as, and I've got a whole separate private identity that I'm using to look up stuff. And to if, I, if the way I think about it is, if I'm concerned enough about my privacy to turn on um, anonymous mode, let's see, what does Firefox have here? Let me just, uh, new private window. If I'm willing to use a new private window, I should be doing that in a whole user account on my computer that is separate from everything else. And I do a very substantial amount of my browsing over there okay. in that world. And I have a different Amazon account over there and I've got a different, and I'm doing that because I just want to break at least yeah. a little bit. I should use a VPN over there. I'm trying to create different whole identity so that I can't be pegged down quite so easily as here's precisely and exactly what Fred Trotter is interested in. And then also we know his social security number and it's like you can tie just everything together. So I think that's probably an idea that I'd have not, I've not run that by like collect is, is seeing if that should be default advice. But I think the other thing that does is, is separate your work life from your not work life. And I think that's probably good too. And so like when I'm Fred Trotter, the person who consults about health IT and privacy and all this kind of stuff, that's one user. And when I'm watching Netflix and I'm watching all this kind of stuff, I'm a different user. And I think that's a good idea because I think there's a lot of things that automatically that you don't think about when you do mm -hmm. that. And so way to aggregate a bunch of good ideas, the VPN, the password manager, the different accounts and everything else into a kind of simple system that's easy to do. <clears throat> do you have any tips like that? That There's a bunch of things you're supposed to be doing. What is the easiest way to ensure that you're naturally doing those? Do you have any well, ideas like that? Yes and no. The one thing that is I don't say or put anything on electronics that I wouldn't want on a billboard, which really 
doesn't deal with so much. Oh, it doesn't deal with limitate limits on access. It doesn't deal with that at all. Oh, no, but I think there's a I think it's exactly what I was suggesting with this idea, which is there's a bunch of other things that you do correctly as a result of that. And that's when I try and don't always succeed. But when I am discussing when I'm discussing Danny behind yeah. Danny's back, I'm always trying to say, is this conversation something I would be comfortable exactly. with hearing? And most of the time I'm talking about you. And of course, I don't actually right. talk about you. I don't talk about most, but when I do occasionally talk about other people, I tried to think before the conversation begins, I'm going to have a conversation that if it were recorded and this person heard it, that they would either feel nothing or feel good right. about what I said. And so I'm not hurting right. so someone. Mike is on when you thought it was off. You're doing okay. Exactly. Then you're yeah. okay. And I think that's a good policy for a dozen other yeah. reasons. It's right? a good human Besides policy. Besides just, the, hmm. it's a good human policy. And what I'm suggesting with my two users on the single computer is the real advice is have a personal computer and have a work computer. But that's the real advice, but I can't afford to do right, that. Right. Nobody can afford to do that. So two different users is as close as you can get to that. And I think the other reason that's good is that you turn off the work computer because I think there's, I think it's actually a good thing to say, yeah, I'm not here right now. I'm over there. I'm on personal time. I think that's positive. And again, I would have, I think the Light Collective has got a bunch of good stuff. I think the EFF is probably, and I think, I'm pretty sure EFF is Electronic Frontier. Let me just make sure I'm getting my acronyms correct. Electronic Frontier Foundation is probably, they probably do the most good for patient privacy without being labeled as a patient privacy organization. Is they release a bunch of tools and they think carefully about this and they're constantly advocating. So I think if you wanted something other than a collective to go re reference about mm -hmm. good places to learn. That's great. Yeah. Really. So I think this class of AI adjudication, AI space adjudication, where AI is making decisions that impact healthcare. I recently went to a conference, oh, so this organization, and I think actually... OHSDI and FIRE are the two things that are making... So I advocated years and years ago for open source electronic right, right. healthcare records. We needed to have transparency in the way these systems worked. And I profoundly lost that argument. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I think is a problem of this class, which is kind of a not great secret of the healthcare system, is something called inter-rater reliability on mm -hmm. chart reviews. And... Let's say your healthcare organization is going to be doing a study on your healthcare conditions. Before that happens, somebody has to do a chart review of your chart and determine, do you have the disease in question? Are you doing well? Or are you doing poorly? And to what degree you are? Do you have side effects that are going to be rule you out from participating in this study? Do you have a secondary condition that's going to rule you out of this study? And so what they do is they have people with clinical experiences doctors, PhDs, nurses, and they cross-train all these people. And I just heard at that same conference that a large institution ha has 50 full-time employees that do nothing but this. So these chart reviews are important for research organizations. And the naughty secret about chart reviews is that when you have two people do a chart review, they will get the same answer about 85% of the time. Sometimes a little less, sometimes 70, right? 
and sometimes a little more, 90. And then I'm talking about like consistent, like you've like, you have those 50 full-time employees and you test them on the same records again and again, and you see how often they agree about what they say. You would think based on clinical topics that it would be something like 98% or 97%, which is in other industries where complex situations need to be evaluated, they create these rules of thumb and, and they get up into the 90s, high 90s. In the end, but in chart reviews, it's very low. 85 is a normal number. 80% is a normal number. And that's no. not great. It's not great. And it's true. Because it when you do a study, it. when you do a study, it doesn't matter if you're going to do an observational study and you're just going to look at the data or if you're going to then use that as a recruiting mechanism to recruit people into a clinical trial. It's kind of foundation is what is the starting status of the patients. And then later we're going to do math. We're going to put one of these, we're going to randomly assign people to this group. We're going to do all the work of doing a study of the six or seven different permutations of study types. They're all grounded in this chart review process. So <clears throat> at this conference, what they revealed, which is the news to me, is that they trained several off-the-shelf the chat GPT, but also some, some of the language, uh, large language models that you can just download on your laptop and run. And they got up to guess what percentage of inter-rater reliability between the large language model and the people. 85%. And the problem I see with that is it's one of these cases where we have not properly gotten human intelligence to solve a particular problem. We have this really complex problem that we kind of all live with when we're doing healthcare research, that people can look at the same healthcare record and see different things. And now what we've done is we've figured out a way to make a large language model kind of stand in as one of these reviewers. And of course, you know, when you have 50 full-time employees doing some conference, so you have 85% faster. 85% faster. And you could also scale it out, right? You could fire half of your human raters, keep half of them, and then not just have 25 replacing them. You could have 250 replacing them. And you can say, hey, AI, why don't you evaluate this chart the same way Mary does when she's having a bad day, like when she's have, got a hangover or when she's feeling particularly negative about people with diabetes, whatever it is. Like you can intentionally introduce bias to these 250 large language models in order to remove bias from the system as a whole. And then you have, the, your, you have say, 50%, 30%, or 10% human, but what they're really doing is validating that the, the large language models are not going too far askew, right? It's just, you're just keeping a human in the mix to keep it from going crazy. And you would improve probably your overall chart reviews, probably. But the improvements are limited to what human intelligence was able to accomplish. And human intelligence has not been able to solve this problem. So my concern is, as I'm hearing this, is I think the insurance adjudication process is of concern to me. I think the chart review adjudication process is of concern. And in all of these cases, we are going to be in a place very soon where we're taking humans out of the mix without ever having gotten to something that is fair and equitable and reasonable and reproducible and decent <laughs> to patients and to providers and health insurance companies. I'm not interested in having just whatever patients say goes, but 
certainly we are not at a place where the patients are fully respected. I, a couple things. One is when I did my first, I led my first time I led an EHR implementation was from paper to EHR. And I had enough sense to know that our core data sets were crap. And just from the level of duplication of patients and providers. And uh, I tried to insist, not knowing how important my instinct was, that we clean it up before we automated. And I was only somewhat successful because it was such a mess that they didn't want to put in the sources to clean it up. And so what we ended up doing was automating garbage. And so we had faster garbage. And okay, so I want to wrap up. And so wrapping up to me, if you were to say to the listener, here are three things to take away from this as a somebody who's trying to learn about privacy and risk and protection of self, what would you say out of all of this would be your takeaway? I think it's important to continue to follow the discussions. I think following you, following me, especially if we talk get together, because this is an area of shared interest. Every time we yeah. get together, we talk about this. I think following the EFF is important. I think following the Light Collective. And when I say follow, I really yes. mean like in the listen to podcasts from the people who are associated with those organizations talking about these topics, because I think this is so one of awareness. those situations. Awareness. I think there's going to be a lot of QWERTY keyboard stuff where there's a technical decision that's made that seems like a good idea at the time, but in fact has very negative long-term impacts where technology gets locked in. In the next 10 years, we're going to make a bunch of decisions that are going to be embedded for a long time, possibly centuries, that it behooves everybody to just be aware and plugged in a little bit. I think commenting on regulatory processes is probably more important than participating in political processes because our politics are so broken. There's a huge number of the really complex issues that are, are handed down by CMS or FDA or, or things like that. So I think paying attention to regula regulations is good. I, the other organization I think is reasonable. And by the way, when I say this, every organization is dysfunctional. So when I refer you to an organization, then you find out it's dysfunctional. Don't resent me. That's the way organizations are. But another organization that I think is worth listening to is the Society for Participatory Medicine, which is as close to a patient watering hole as we have. Just all the patients from the various different patient communities come together there a little bit. So they're worth following. The other thing, I would advise people against trying to avoid interacting and understanding how the large language models work. Because get good, if you can, at chat GPT and understanding how the prompting changes things and how these large language models work. When, going back to that story, when they first turned the large language model on and they asked to do chart reviews, it was getting like 50% inner rate of reliability. And then they changed the prompts and they got it up to 85%. So I think there is a, there's going to be a programming with English component, programming with natural language, which is going to be, which is going to come out of the prompt of these languages. And that's going to be a new skill. That I think in order to follow the conversation and understand, I think that's mm -hmm. a good thing. The other thing is, if you have an issue where you are concerned that someone's going to use information against you, they are going to shame you systematically or, or make judgments against you, 
be careful. Really think carefully about how you your information flows and who has the information and who doesn't. And I think there's two approaches that work there. One is to try to make sure the information doesn't leave the harm. But I would also say the way it should work is that just because you have the information go out, the harm is not necessarily like you can fight against the injustice in the judicial, these extrajudicial processes. And that is actually as important as we, we need. A, we need people who are saying, yeah, I have my cholestomy bag and I'm not going to allow my workplace to use that to discriminate against me. And I'm going to use, I'm going to be loud and annoying about the, uh, the mighty Casey approach. <laughs> and we need people who are trying to protect their privacy. And we also need people who are saying, you know what, just because you have information doesn't mean you get to use it against me. So we need people who are fighting, who are trying to get out of the fight and the people who are actually mm -hmm. trying to get into the fight in terms of information being used against you. Thank you. That's, That's great. That okay. I don't know whether I'm going to use this or not, but I just want to tell you a really fast story that is might not sound like it's relevant, but it might be. And that is that I have a 12-year-old grandson and we we get together for an hour every Sunday and we've been doing this since 2019. And this time we were playing with Dali, the AI graphic and we were trying to figure out how to get it to um, draw a decent anime picture. And we tried all sorts of ways to say what we wanted, being general, changing what the picture was about, putting in certain styles of anime to replicate as if it was watercolor versus photos. And it, it, according to my grandson, it was all garbage. And it did not really reflect any decent anime. And so it, I'm saying that story because like, we think a lot about AI, about words, but there's also about images. And anyway, Fred. No, I think that's really important. And I think the, let's generalize as yeah. far as we can go there, right? What you, what I think the future is going to be is that an AI is going to be something that you can talk to because that's how you talk to, that's how you communicate everything, either in writing or in, 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 right. in, in spoken words. And it is going to, I think it will spread to the point where AI is either badly or correctly imitating almost any kind of human creativity, right? So I want a song that sounds like this. I want a picture that sounds like this. I want a video that depicts this. I want whatever it is. I want a novel. I want something printed, something sewn. I think there's a huge space for machines doing cre what have been the domain of human creativity for a long time. And I think the other side of that coin is, is that every time you're adding the, the app to do that, it's kind of violating the privacy of all of the people who did the art. <laughs> I'm not sure that privacy is the right way to say that, but you're prompting, but it's what AI is doing is outsourcing the creativity by aggregating creativity, right? So it's like, I'm going to look at a thousand pictures or a thousand sewings, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a thing. And I'm going to, I'm going to take the creativity of a huge number of people 
reverse engineer it and then produce something you which is in some senses creative, but it's not clear to the degree that it's de novo creative or versus creative in the way that it's just aggregated imitation. And so it's not clear what that means at all. And it's so complicated. Like this, the, and the people who believe that AI is going to just make people more productive, I think they are woefully uninformed. They are Pollyannish. Is that the right way to say it? Like just dangerously hopeful. (laughs) Thanks, Fred. We'll do this again. How long of a shelf life will this conversation have? The tension between community, learning, safety, shame, and technology, however you define them, will never cease. Significant changes in technology have unexpected ramifications. Imagine life before and after the introduction of fire, the wheel, printing press, penicillin, light bulbs, the telephone, contraception, and batteries, all predated computers and affecting privacy, fear, shame, and connection. I appreciate Fred's insistence on considering definition and context when talking about privacy, harm reduction, health equity, and justice. I can't imagine a tribe without justice and equity. The concept of artificial intelligence as the rapid aggregation of human creativity is so seductive. Should I open my heart to that seduction? A little bit? A lot? Or not at all? Perhaps Fred and I should have this conversation again in a year or two. I host, write, and produce Health Hats, the podcast, with assistance from Kayla Nelson and Leon and Oscar Van Leeuwen. Music from Joey Van Leeuwen. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I buy my hats at Selma Gundy, Boston, and my coffee from the Jennifer Stone Collective. Links in the show notes. I'm grateful to you who have the critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. Subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. Thank you.